Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Those are the first eight verses of Psalm 119, the first 24 ver- verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, October the 13th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. Um, we are continuing our look at the life of Jeremiah and the prophecies of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 37, verses 3 to 21. We're in um, still in the First epistle of Paul to the Corinthian church in the 14th chapter, verses 13 to 25, and in Matthew's gospel, the 10th chapter, the 24th through the 33rd verses. So remember that that um, Jeremiah, beginning of the week, we talked about that Jeremiah had given a prophecy that was that that announced God's intentions for judgment on on Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah that remained, and also on the king and his servants. And then the king burned it in fire, ignored it utterly, treated it with contempt. And so Jeremiah wrote another prophecy, said same thing, and then more so. And it was rejected again by the king, and then it was rejected by the king that was set up as the vassal king for Nebuchadnezzar to oversee Jerusalem before he finally gets completely fed up with it. And so what we get is that king, Zedekiah, sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, please pray for us to the Lord our God. In other words, at this point, he just wants them to pray that disaster be averted. We don't see any, any amendment of life or repentance, just simply, hey, we found a righteous man, maybe he'll pray for us and his prayer will be answered. And too often we can kind of do that same sort of thing. Hey, if I only ask this person that I know who is super righteous, maybe their prayer will avail, even though God would overlook my prayer. Well, why would he overlook your prayer? Because you're not, like, super righteous? Or maybe what's called for is for you to repent of those things in your life that you're not proud of when you measure yourself against other people, and then pray that he would hear your prayer. Now, Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt because they, were, they had a covenant with Israel to protect them. And when the Chaldeans, who were besieging Jerusalem, heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. They didn't want to fight the Egyptians in Jerusalem. That was not the place where they wanted to do that. So then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt to its own land. They're going to abandon you. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away even if you should defeat the whole army of Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they 
would rise up and burn this city with fire. It, it ain't the Chaldeans you have to fear, fellas. It's me. My will is going to be done. No matter how unlikely it may seem to you in any given moment, my will will be done. This judgment that I decreed will not be stopped in any way. Now, when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion there among the people. So he's going. To, Jeremiah would have been a Benjamite. And so he goes there and to receive his portion. What does that mean? Well, it's going to, to, to receive his property. That's his ancestral birthright to receive this property. So he's headed that way. And then when he was at the Benjamin gate, going out to Benjamin, a sentry there named Uriah, the son of Shelemiah, son of Hananiah, seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are deserting to the Chaldeans. Wow. Really? That's what he's doing? How do you know that? Why would you think that? Well, it's because he had prophesied that the Chaldeans were going to win, so the presumption was, well, he must have gone over to them in his heart, and now he's trying to go out there on his own by lying about what he's actually doing here. <clears throat> Jeremiah said, it's a lie. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Eregah would not listen to him and seized Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, for it had been made a prison. And then when Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there many days, Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said, is there any word from the Lord? So he believed enough to believe that, that, that Jeremiah was indeed a prophet of the living God. He just didn't want to do the stuff necessary because he, he just wanted deliverance from his present uh, situation. And Jeremiah said, yes, there is word from the Lord. Jeremiah <laughs> he said, you'll be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. It's as simple as that. It's exactly what I told you was going to happen. And then he said, what wrong have I done to you or your servants or this people that you put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you saying the king of Babylon will not come up against you and against this land? Where are the lying prophets, in other words? Now here, please, O my lord, the king, let my humble plea come before you and don't send me back to the house of Jonathan, the secretary, lest I die there. So he believes that they're going to murder him. If he goes back there, that they'll murder him. So Zedekiah gave orders, and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard. And a loaf of bread was brought him daily from the baker's street until all the bread of the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. So he was under lock and key, but he was under guard so that no one could come against him and murder him in that place. It's, it's a difficult thing to be a truth teller particularly in an era that doesn't want to know the truth, that, would, that has preferred the lie that it's bought into, or the lies that it's bought into. And then as Christians, for us to, to stand athwart the ramparts and declare truth in, in, in loving compassion, to say that, that we, it's not our desire to see you lost and to see you in hell. It, it, that is not our desire. We will not take any pleasure in that at all. We're trying to call you to truth, and we're trying to call you to life. You're choosing death, and you don't even seem to be aware of it. In the gospel, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And, and the way that, that rabbinic teaching works is that y y if you want to put forth something, quote, new in any way, 
then what you need to do is you need to establish your bona fides by quoting one who has gone before you and, and then taking that teaching and doing something with it because that way at least you have uh, declared that you stand in line with those who have come before. So you've got to, you, you can't just present a de novo argument, in other words. You've got to appeal to, to the history of the tradition of the, of the church, as it were, in order to do that. And so that's what Jesus is saying, is a disciple is not above his teacher. You, you never supersede that teacher because that's how you got where you are. You stand on their shoulders no matter what you do. He said it's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, the Lord of the Flies, then how much more will they malign those of the household? So if they're going to hate me, they're going to hate you more. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say it in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So ultimately, they're going to do to me what they're going to do to me, but the truth can't be hidden. It can only be hidden by the ones who possess the truth. And so we're not called to hide the truth. We're called to make the truth known. In love, as I said, the character of a prophet is somebody who actually loves the people to whom he speaks and, do, and, and wishes the best for them, wishes for their repentance in order that the Lord's decree against them of judgment w- would be annulled by their repentance. So that's the way that we're to proclaim, not in hatred for the world, but in love for the world, in compassion for the world, in the same way that Jesus took on flesh and came among us in order to save us. So he says, don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I'm making it easy for him. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. In other words, God cares about the sparrows. They may not have much value in the eyes of the world. You can sell two of them for a penny, but not one will fall to the ground. Not one will die apart from your father. I mean, so he cares about every part of his creation and, he, and then says you're of infinitely more worth than that. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my father who's in heaven. And what does it mean for Jesus to deny someone before the father who's in heaven? It means that he would say he, he's that's not one of mine. I don't recognize that person. Um, and therefore, that person doesn't receive the crown of life because they're not in Christ Jesus. So it's, it's with compassion and pity and mercy and love that we proclaim the gospel, that we proclaim God couldn't have made it any easier. This is my son. He proved himself in his life. He proved himself in his death. And then I proved him by raising him from the dead. In the epistle, Paul says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Because what he said is, is that it's, it's not really useful for the church for you to speak in a tongue. He's, he's essentially saying that it's more of a private matter. He said, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. It just, the spirit just takes over and prays what it will in groans that, that can't be expressed by human language. Uh, is what he will say in another place. And so what am I to do then? If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what am I to do about that? 
I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my mind. I'm not just going to pray in the spirit. I'm also going to pray with my mind. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Those two things are not separated from one another. We are in the flesh, but we are also in the spirit. And so both those things need to be working together, Paul says. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, in the ecclesia, in the meeting, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The most important thing in the gathering of God's people is the proclamation of God's Son. And that's what Paul's saying is, is that I would much rather you learn with your mind in order that you may worship with your spirit but you're worshiping you know not what, you're worshiping what you actually do know. It's important to have knowledge, because the more knowledge you have, the more worship you can give. And that's what Paul says in Romans. Ultimately, his, he gets to the end of the 11th chapter of heady theology, and then he gets to the end of that, and then he bursts forth into praise. And that's exactly what ought to happen, is is that theology, if it's done right, should lead to doxology, the praise of God. So the knowledge of God should lead to the praise of God. And Paul says, do that with your mind and your spirit. If, if The more you fill your mind, the more you renew your mind, the more your spirit has to worship over in, in, in a way that understands. And that understanding, Paul says, is important. Brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. So don't know these other things, don't do these other things, but in thinking, be mature. In the law, it's written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, well, I speak to this people, and even then they'll not listen to me, says the Lord. In other words, what he's saying here is he's quoting scripture that says that my people have grown deaf to my word. And they can't hear it, even if I provoke them by having other people proclaim this truth, they still won't listen. He says, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? which is exactly what happens on the day of Pentecost, right? That's what they said, was, was that surely these people are drunk because they were all speaking in tongues. <clears throat> but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secret of its hearts are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. It's continues to be true. The proclamation of God's word supersedes everything else. The proclamation of God's truth is the the key. It's not just the sign gifts, because people will always poo-poo the sign gifts, as they did with Jesus. They attributed some of the things he did to the work of Beelzebul, as Jesus points out in that particular passage from the gospel today. And so when we come together, when we worship, the, the, the important thing is the proclamation of God's Word, because the Spirit carries that proclamation to the hearts of those who who, who need to hear it. And it will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, just as Jesus said would be the first work of the Holy Spirit, but it has to be intelligible 
first before it can be spiritualized and internalized. And so it's always important that we're very clear with the truth and that we don't try to obscure it in any shape, form, or fashion. It's important that we all be prepared to give an accounting of the hope that lives within us, which is the preaching of the gospel and the way that it's affected our own lives.